Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very excited today because I am sitting across from a man who is a big, big part of my life. His name is Gene Blythe, and I knew him when he was the head macha at ABC Disney for casting for almost 20 years through God knows how many regimes of presidents. An amazing run and one of the most influential uh, casting directors and executives in network television history, in my opinion. And uh, I, I, I am so excited to be here. I have to say this because this is very embarrassing. And um, Gene is like a cowboy. Not today. Today he's dressed in early American homeless. But, but, but that's okay. Gene is you see, Gene is a cowboy. And so when I was getting ready this morning, I actually did something. I felt like a woman getting ready to go to a rave. Okay, literally, I I was I had clothes out on the bed trying to figure out what I was going to wear that was going to have my cowboy style. And I am wearing um, uh, these uh, cowboy boots that are uh, sort of uh, have like a, an embroidery in them. I am wearing my uh, 1969 Gap jeans that have the boot cut. And I'm wearing a uh, cowboyish kind of shirt with the sort of mother of pearl buttons that snap on and a little collar action that sort of feels like I was part of the gay rodeo. And cowboys don't wear Gap jeans. <laughs> and cowboys don't wear 
standard yokes like this. So this is a Beverly Hills cowboy. Anyway, the story that I wanted to tell was an amazing one because he always acknowledged uh, uh, that I had an eye for talent. And not only was he the driving force behind many situations that I did, but I also believe that he was driving force behind me having a four-year uh, executive producer deal at Disney, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But when I was bringing talent there under this particular deal that Gene was a driving force behind, there was a young comic who everybody knows now, who nobody really knew then, named Dane Cook, who I was very, very excited about and I felt was really had something special to offer. And he's done so many great things. But before he'd done anything, Gene was a guy who I knew I could send Dane's videotape to. And back then there were videotapes. And Gene saw the tape and immediately saw what I saw and uh, wanted to do a deal with him. And sometimes at the company, you want to enroll the people that you work with, even though you know that you have the ability to green light anything and you know you have the ability to just do a deal with anybody. But a lot of times when you're working at a company, you sort of want people to be enrolled in what you're excited about as opposed to making a decision on somebody and just putting it through and then say hey i made a deal with this person here get excited about them you want those people to feel like they're a part of it too and that they made the decision with you even if technically they didn't you want them to feel like they did and you know you'll have more people fighting with you in the army to win the battle we had set a meeting for dane cook to come across the country to meet with gene the president of the network at the time who was dean valentine and if i'm not mistaken and gene will correct me i believe also at the network at the time were David Kissinger and Pete Aronson, and who have gone on to do great things and uh, who will be doing this podcast soon, I'm sure. And the president of the company was a guy named Dean Valentine, who was a really interesting guy. And uh, the first meeting I had in Dean's office shows you how naive I was as a person. I walk into his office to take my first meeting with him. That with you, a red baseball cap and your ponytail going out the back. And cowboy boots and God knows what. <laughs> and I go into Dean's office before the Dane Cook meeting just to meet him for the first time maybe a week earlier. And his office was this incredibly huge office, beautiful. And I had a habit of just standing and looking around at things and before I'd sit down if somebody was on the phone and he was on the phone and you know how people are on the phone, they wave to you, you can go sit down or whatever. And I'm standing and I'm looking at the wall and on the wall is this like book uh, shelf in the wall with books on the wall. But they looked like old, unique books and it was kind of confusing to me, but you know, he gets off the phone and right before we sit down, I say, oh, this is really cool. What's the significance of these books? Uh, have you read these books here? And he looked at me with this look of almost disgust <laughs> and he said to me, that's art, Barry. <laughs> that's art, they aren't books. That's art, Barry. 
<laughs> and I just felt like, oh my god, this is a horrible way to start this guy. I'm sitting down with the guy, and and I have no cultural, uh, <laughs> no cultural wisdom whatsoever. <laughs> Anyway, so I met him. I had a great conversation. It turned out great. And then Gene set up this meeting for Dane Cook to fly in and meet everybody before they pulled the trigger on the deal. So Gene could get the blessing of the Don and the group. So we go, we sit down, and Gene sits down. He says, listen, um, uh, I don't know how to tell you this. I know you flew all the way across the country, but there's been a death in in uh, in uh, Dean Valentine's family, and he's been out today in the last day. And and he did come in today from the funeral, but I don't know if he's going to want to do anything. Look, I'm going to try to see if I can get him to come in here. So here we are. You know, Dane flew across the country. And he knows that this meeting depends on whether he's going to get an overall deal at Disney and ABC or if he's not. This meeting depends on it. And for those of you listening, in any meeting or interview you have in the world, the thing is, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if the person just had a baby and they're excited and happy or if there's a death in the family or if their girlfriend just broke up with them or they got in an argument. And you have to figure out a way to navigate these situations so you can win. And so right on the fly, this young performer who had no experience at all really in these meetings was in a situation where he thought he was coming in and everybody wanted him and whatever, and it was going to be great. And now he's in a situation where he has to win over a guy who just got back from a funeral. And it was his father. <laughs> the chances of anybody winning in that situation are slim and none and slim left town. But Gene... He had this thing where he, he gave performers the confidence. He gave them a level of safety. And he closed the door before he went to get Dean. And he said to Dean and myself, look, I'm going to bring him in here. He's having a really, really shitty week. His father just passed away. But I know that you can turn him around and make him feel better. And I know this meeting, if I can get him in here, I know that he'll love you and it will make his day. But Dane, could you do me a favor? Could you do that thing that I know you've done on certain occasions that you rarely do? Can you do that for Dean? And Dane said, sure, whatever you want. Now what happens here in these rooms, which a lot of performers don't realize, is that the executives, sadly, when you go into a room, they want you to be a heightened version of yourself. They want you to almost tap dance for them in a way that they want you to, to let them know that you're the guy for them and you're what they believe they are. You can't just go in and be like yourself in a regular conversation or else chances are you're not going to get anything unless you're a known genius and you're just coming in and you're just people know the way you are and that's the way it is if you're a writer you're going to go in and you're 
you might shake when you hold the paper, but if you've written a great script before that they love, they don't care if you shake when you read the paper because they already know you've already won before. But if you haven't had any example of anything, that's fine. So he goes out and he brings Dean in the room and Dean is very solemn and he's wearing all black and start talking and start talking and Dean slowly works with him in the conversation, works in some of the jokes, what he's doing and how he's doing it. And then as Dean felt that he was feeling a little more comfortable, he did something that was risky that Gene said that he should do. And it was one of the most unbelievable moments that I've ever had in a room. Dane did an impression that he did as a young comedian that he rarely did after, never did in any concert, never did on any album, but where he had the ability to become a velociraptor. <laughs> and he jumped up on the conference table, like literally leapt up on the conference table. It seemed like with a four-foot vertical to where the conference table felt it was going to break in front of all of us and walked across the conference table like a velociraptor T-Rex, snapping his head <laughs> and his face and his teeth and he was right in front of Dean Valentine's face within inches with his teeth out, snapping and just breathing in his ear. And Dean was losing his mind, laughing so hard. It was such a release for him. And at the end of the meeting, he hugged Dane like he was hugging a relative at the funeral. Like it was the most joy that he had that week. And the meeting ended, and Dean walked us back to the elevator and said, thank you. And I remember, I believe I let Dane go down the elevator, and I told him I'd meet him down at the bottom. And Gene hugged me and said, thank you, Barry. Uh, I think we're going to have a great deal here, and we're going to end up doing this. Uh, it was wonderful. That's the happiest I've seen Dean in a long time this week. And so the lesson here is the fact that in any position you're in, in any job you're in, always know that there's always going to be situations that happen that you, you just don't know what you're going to get into. And you have to be flexible. You have to be malleable. You have to be in a, a situation where you can change on the fly and you have no worries about anything, no anxiety, and you go forward. And you do what you have to do to get that gig. I don't care if you're in an interview. I don't care if you're in an audition. I don't care if you're in the meeting to make partner in your firm. There's always going to be these things and these factors that are not always going to be lined up your way. So the lesson learned from this short story that I'm telling up front is the fact that always go into any situation being the best representation of yourself and being everything you can possibly be to navigate and i can guarantee you you will always put yourself in a situation where you will be successful and you'll always put yourself in a situation where you will be ahead of everybody else who went in for that role and if you do that the chances are that you're going to find the success and you're going to win and you're going to get to the point where you're going to get the position that you want, not only in that job, but in life. 
Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Again, very excited. My guest today is Gene Blythe, who has done so many things, but known through me from the head and executive vice president of casting at ABC. So I'm going to give him the proper introduction here that he deserves, and then we'll get into it. And it's going to be an amazing, amazing podcast today. And those of you who do anything in the acting profession, or any other profession are going to take a lot from him because the biggest thing about Gene is that when you're in a situation where you're in a job and there's a new president that comes into your job, I don't care where you are, the intention of most presidents when they come in is they're going to clean house, and they normally do. But somehow Gene, through I don't know how many presidents, I'd say there had to be at least eight presidents during the time he was there. They all kept him on and cleared the decks of almost everybody. As a matter of fact, before I introduce him, I will say that I had Steve McPherson on this podcast, who was the president of ABC from, I think, 2003 to 2010, seven years, and the last two years that Gene was there. And I asked him, you know, when you get there as a president, you want to bring in your own people. He said, uh, yes, all the time you want to bring in your own people. You want to feel safe and do whatever. I said, well, what about Gene Blythe? How come he stayed? He said, Barry, there wasn't even a question in my mind that Gene Blythe was going to stay. I said, but you know how normally you're in a casting session and it's like, you know, the guy does his stuff and then everybody in the room looks back at the president to see what he has to say. He said, Barry, Gene Blythe was by my side 
every single test I had. And when they looked back at me, I looked at Gene, he looked at me, and if we weren't on the same page, we weren't hiring that person. That's how important Gene Blythe was to the network. So, Gene Blythe started as an actor on Broadway in the late 60s in a play called The Unknown Soldier and His Wife, starring Christopher Walken. He also was on Broadway with the original production of Hair. Can you believe it? I should have shown up here naked to do this interview. Um, <laughs> he went to the Mark Taper Forum from 1980 to 82 in casting. He also... Uh, decided to make the switch to theater casting before he went to television casting. Gene was the executive vice president of casting for ABC Entertainment Television Group and was promoted to executive vice president of casting of ABC Entertainment Television Group. In March of 2001, he had previously been the senior vice president of casting at ABC Entertainment Television Group beginning in September 1999. He continued to oversee all casting issues for the division encompassing both network and studio programming for ABC and other broadcast entities. Prior to joining ABC, he served as vice president senior vice president of casting of Touchstone Television, where he oversaw all network television projects, including long-form series and pilots. He was instrumental in the original casting of such series as Home Improvement, Ellen, Boy Meets World, Popular, and Unhappily Ever After. He also contracted first deals with such talented actors as Tim Allen, Drew Carey, Dane Cook, Selma Hayek, Doug E. Doug, and Dave Chappelle, among others. He joined Walt Disney Television in 1988 after serving as director of television casting at MTM Productions, where he supervised casting on the series St. Elsewhere and the debut season of New Heart. His feature credits include Zoot Suit and Just Between Friends. I am very excited to introduce you today a man that has been a good friend of mine for many years and who I love dearly and is so talented and one of the best his profession has ever seen. Please welcome Gene Blythe. You've never spoken to me so kindly. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, and, and it's uh, you always look the same. You never age. I don't call my hair. I turned 70 in May. You're 70? I'm 70 years old. I swear to you if, you, if you saw this man, you would never believe he was a day over 68. You know, one thing I want to go back to. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, he looks like he's 40, honestly. <laughs> about just told about me to Gene Valentine. Yes. Well, because he was such an interesting, he was such an interesting guy, uh -huh. and you know when you saw when you saw that piece of art in his office, that's just when he started collecting. Now he's got warehouses of art. He's one of the major collectors in in L.A. Uh, of uh, of impressionists. Anyway, I always thought of him as a beatnik because he read every day. He really, he wasn't like a showbiz guy at all, but he was so smart that we could. It, it was so interesting. We used to take meetings like we saw Beyonce the first time. We saw, I mean, we saw all these people together, and he was sort of learning. Actually, Dean was the guy who hired me. I was coming in at a position that would be higher, but because they didn't have a television department, he was a person interviewing me when I came to Disney. Wow. Yeah, so anyway, he was just a really interesting guy. Now, you say he was a beatnik. Now, I just want you to know, for those of you uh, uh, listening to this, 
I think of a beatnik as you know the hate Ashbury district of, well, of San Francisco. Hippies. Yeah, but that's still. But I think of them as more like Frolinghetti. Dean, okay. In the, okay, in the fifties. All right, Dean Valentine. <laughs> sort of, you know, when you met Dean Valentine, he sort of. He'd love like, that I said that. By the way, I think he would love that. <laughs> Dean was sort of like a guy who looked like Herb from accounting. <laughs> okay, you just you, you just couldn't you know you couldn't believe that he was this guy. And anyway, okay. So anyway, so uh, so that's cool about Dean. So he hired you. So yeah, he actually was the guy that interviewed me after uh, when I left MTM. Uh, he and Tony Jonas. Mm -hmm. Because, as I say, they didn't have a... They, that's why I was one of the first six executives hired at Disney to uh, become the television department. Incredible. Yeah. What was your first acting deal that you guys made as a television department? Oh, it was Tim Allen. Tim Allen was the first yeah. one. Yeah, well, as I was saying, when I walked in the building, they didn't. They had a really great feature casting department, but they did really didn't know anything about television. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that time, anybody you wanted to hire on anything, all the tapes had to go up to Michael Eisner. They had to go up to Jeffrey Katzenberg. They had to go up to Randy Reese. They had to go up to all the executives on that floor in the in the team. Well, it wasn't Team Disney building then. It was that little old animation building in the middle. But once we hired Tim Allen, we never had to do that again. But up to then, they uh, they um, they just didn't have a, 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 a track record. This is the thing that's amazing. You said it was the first deal you ever made. Now, if you're like a musical artist, let's say you're, <laughs> let's just say you're, let's say you're Beyonce, and you put out an album, and there's 10 songs on the album. If you sit down with Beyonce and you say, okay, how many of these songs are going to be hits? She's not going to say 10. <laughs> She's going to say, well, hopefully, you know, maybe two or three become big hits and I'd be really, really happy. So your first thing out of the gate makes the company, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in syndication, the first deal was $800 million. Right. The first deal you made was $800 million. Uh, Tim Al, the home improvement, after the third year of home improvement, paid for all of our development for like the next seven years, what came off of that show. Um, but shoot, you reminded me of something that just went out of my mind when you were talking about that. Well, you are almost 70. Yeah, so. I am almost 70. <laughs> but oh, I was gonna say, when you talk about uh, uh, percentages, the, the first, um, pilot season we had, we made nine pilots, seven of them sold. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, it was, and it went that way. The next year, um, I think we did something like uh, twenty and fourteen of them sold. It really, it really did, it really did go like that. It was really a for those of you who. Uh, anybody listening in any television network today or any studio today, there will never be a time when there's seven of nine pilots that go, or 14 of 20. If, you, if you're at CBS, right now, maybe you're developing eight comedies to 10 comedies that you'll choose. And there's not even any real estate. There might be one slot available to, to do something. And so you're gonna, you, there's, it would be impossible for you to pick up 
seven a night or even get them sold if you're the production company of CBS and your own home network doesn't do it and you're trying to sell it somewhere else. The real estate just isn't even there, which is which is odd because you would think it would be there because there's so many other areas to put television shows on. Well, there was a period of time when they were you know, I mean, Warner Brothers, when Les was at Warner Brothers, they made like 30, 40 pilots a year. Les Moonves. Yeah, they, I mean, they were just throwing stuff against the, the wall to hope it would stick, you know. But I think a lot of my attitude came from MTM in terms of, because I, I said that you were speaking to executives, and, and is that we never presented anything to a network that we didn't want. They never saw an actor we didn't want. We didn't give them choices. If they didn't like who we brought, then we'd go back at it again. But then we're going to bring one more person back for them to say yes or no. And that, I think, followed through into Disney in that we had that kind of approach that we uh, we only really did things that we really believed in. And in comedy at that time, Dean was great at comedy. And why why do you think he was great at comedy? Because this is one thing that Dean did that I, you know, there's always something that somebody does. And you have no idea. You, you, everybody in life has this feeling, like where you see something, and you're like, "How did anybody write a check or decide to to do that?" Like one of the times I remember, you know, just a movie, for instance, a title of a movie that always blew me away. That I was thinking, like a hundred executives have to actually decide on this title. It was with Richard Dreyfuss. It was a movie called Crippendorf's Tribe. And I said to myself, who is going to see a movie called Crippendorf's Tribe? I mean, couldn't they figure out a better name or whatever? So there was something that Dean endorsed and fought for and a show that just blew me away and that he was so passionate about. Somebody who was so smart was a show called Homeboys in Outer Space. <laughs> and I, and I, I, the minute I heard it, I was like, it's him. this is impossible. <laughs> There's no way that this could happen. Well, you know, before that, before that idea, he he had this whole thing for a rap show. Now I'm talking about I'm talking about 1988, 89. That he saw this. He wanted to develop a show, uh, a half hour comedy that had to do with that, and uh, but he could never he never came up with a script that he liked. The thing about Dean though, that he was really literate. He read everything, and he had the. So if he read everything. How does he do a he show called Homeboys in Outer Space? And he had an incredible sense of humor. And so he'd always go against uh, go against whatever you were thinking, the contrarian way yeah, of doing things. Always, always. But a lot of people didn't really get to see how funny he he is. I remember him on sets of things. You know, we did like seven, we did like seven uh, pilots with Dave Chappelle out of eight years, maybe, and at Disney, uh, we kept coming back to do them. And I remember he was on the set one time with Dave. And there was a scene that Dave was doing where he was trying to prove himself to his mother. And the line in the script was for the live taping was he was supposed to yell. His mother was trying to say that he wasn't as responsible. And the line was for Dave to yell out, I'm not a baby, mom. <laughs> and it got a laugh. <laughs> but Dean took him aside and he said, you know, that's funny, Dave, and I know it's written on the page and these writers wrote this for you, but there's something funnier there, and I know you can figure it out. 
So just take a few minutes and think of something and just go out there and do the take. I'm having this conversation with you and nobody else here. I just want you to go out and do something. And Dean had a way of empowering an artist. And Dave made an adjustment on this line that to me showed what a genius he was because sometimes the simplest things are the things that you don't think of. So he goes out there, I don't know what he's gonna do, and instead of yelling out the line, I'm not a baby mom, Dave makes this adjustment, applause. I'm not a baby mommy. <laughs> just two words two letters just two letters <laughs> and that was all because of how what Dean was so there so anyway I, I love to go way way back if you don't mind because I think it's important for our audience to know how people start in life and how they get to where they're going and and what it is so take me back to where you grow grow up and what are you doing before you have the first inclination of being in show business and what's the inspiration for you to want to become an actor oh wow well I was always a singer even when I was a kid my mother was a cocktail waitress and I used to sing in the bar um, where was this this was in Fresno California I was born in the Bay Area. It all started in a 5,000-watt radio station <laughs> yeah. in Fresno, California. MTM. Yeah, that's right. That uh, was an that, MTM show, the Mary Tyler Moore show, yeah. Ted Knight. Right. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, I uh, in high school and that sort of thing, so I started, I was an R&B singer. I was actually, be, be, I'm a little embarrassed to even say this, but, be, you know, like be, before... Um, I was like blue-eyed soul. I had a falsetto. I sang, you know, I sang dances and that kind of thing. So, what was your, what was your, the song that your favorite song to sing back then? Well, I had, I mean, my life's ambition at that time was to be black. I sang everything that was R and B, everything that was soul. I mean, I. Well, I've heard that I, you are from the waist down. That's all I put. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my handle was the mashed potato boy. Why the mashed? Because I did the mashed potatoes on stage, and my agent, my manager, heard it. Somebody in the audience talk about it. So from then on, uh, you know, all the playbills had Gino the mashed potato boy. Do you want to explain to our audience who might not know what the? Well, you can potato. edit all this out, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what is the mashed potato thing? It's mean? a dance. Now, well, I you see, you're too young to remember from the 60s. I'm the too dance. young. You're too young. God bless you. That was a big dance in the 60s. Okay, so yeah. you, you were the mashed potato guy. Right. Now, what, what was the dance like? Can you explain it to our audience who might be able to visualize it like Vin Scully? A, a lot of foot movement. A lot of foot movement. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So anyway, I'm so sorry I brought that up. But <laughs> <laughs> um, So my uh, last gig uh, as a singer was at the... Uh, Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, and I got torn apart by a bunch of women in back of the theater. My clothes were ripped off, my hair was ripped off. So I, that night, I joined the army. Why? You had I, women it, chasing. It totally blew my mind. I joined the army, and I said, if you can send me tomorrow, 
I will enlist today. So basically, you finally get to a point where you're successful. You go and perform in front of a huge audience. Women are tearing off your clothes, and that helps you make the decision, you know, I'm going to go away for a year with all men. Well, like three years. And by the way, that's when Vietnam was just starting. So I was really an idiot. But but help our audience understand that. uh, I was just freaked out by it. I've been singing for a while, but I'd never really, that night scared me. I was in the rose bushes with people on top of me. It, It really, it scared me. And I've always dreamt to be in those bushes <laughs> with people on top of me. So anyway, I uh, got in the army and I, I wound up on the ship going to Korea. On the ship going to Korea, uh, one of the officers knew who I was, knew I was a singer from the Bay Area. So I was, it was at Christmas time on a cruise on a ship going to, well, we made three stops and then I wound up in Korea. Anyway, he ordered me to put together talent for the officers. So I got a band together and we were entertaining the officers all the way over. I, when I got to Korea, I went to a helicopter unit as a supply clerk. Within three months, that officer had me transferred to Seoul, Korea to conduct the USO program for Korea. Those guys in that helicopter unit went to Vietnam. So while I was in the service, I directed plays for the army. I, I, uh, um, I acted uh, with Helen Hayes. We did. Uh, we toured with uh, uh, Death of a Salesman. And so when I got out of the army, in I was on the East Coast. I was in Maryland, and um, so I'm going to New York. And uh, went to New York. And two weeks later, I was on Broadway in The Unknown Soldier and His Wife. But how do you get a Broadway gig when you don't even have an agent, a manager, anything? Okay, well, that's another part of the story. Uh, is that you get, friend... you get to New York, and two weeks later, you're 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 in a Broadway show with Christopher Walken? Yeah. And what happened was, when I was in the army, Mary Martin came over in Hello Dolly. I befriended the whole cast. When I got to New York, I called this guy that I knew from the cast, and he said, "Well, uh, oh yeah, let's get together. We meet me at my agent's office." And then we'll go to the movies or something. I said, sure. So I go up to his agent's office. It was APA, and Bob Kohler was the agent in New York at the time. APA is still a huge, huge agency today. And unbelievably, coming full circle, if you don't mind me saying, about the way relationships work. Who represented Tim Allen when he did that deal? Matt Williams. And they got the theatrical package on home improvement which means that they were the ones who were getting a percentage of the whole license fee of, of the show. So when it did syndicate for $800 million, APA made millions of dollars, which helped fund their company for many, many years right, to come. Man. All right, keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> so anyway, no, no. So anyway, so we're up there, and my friend had just auditioned for this role. And um, the agent says, uh, are you an actor? I said, well... Yeah, I want to be, but I'm, I'm studying now. I'm going to. I'm starting at the academy, um, and uh, he says you don't want to act. Well, yeah, I guess I did. So my buddy didn't get that job. He sent me down to audition for that job, and I got it. <laughs> How was your friendship with that guy after that? I never talked to him again. But, <laughs> but I don't think it was ever anger or anything. We just lost touch with each other. <laughs> So what was Christopher Walken like? Oh, in those days, he was great. I mean, I haven't seen Chris in a... um, Actually, the last time I actually spoke... No, that's not correct. Uh, The second to the last time I actually spoke to Chris was the weekend he went out on the boat with Natalie Wood and 
and uh, Wagner. Yeah. I was trying to get him to do a play at the taper. You know, and so he called me back to because I told him how badly I wanted him to do this play. And he, he said he read it. You know, he thought about it. he's really doing other things now. And he was off for the weekend with them. Well, the last time I saw him, though, was, you know, when he got the Oscar for Deer Hunter. I was dating an actress who was doing was uh, on location with Heaven's Gate in uh, Montana. And Chris was in that movie. So. This is the night. This is a great example of you know be, what stardom does and what it does to your life. So I got to the hotel. I knew he was in the hotel. I sent a message up just to let him know I was in the hotel. He uh, he uh, came down to see me in the bar. We were together talking, just shooting the shit uh, for about fifteen minutes, and then all of a sudden the room got really small. And I mean, not only patrons, but actors, everybody was on Chris's table. You know, what started to be a one-on-one, and we because he just got the Oscar, we were talking about that, just, he had to leave. He had to say, you know, I'll catch up with you later, you know, I gotta, but the room just crowded. And I imagine that's what happens to all actors when they reach that kind of fame, all of a sudden, this is not what they bargained for, you know? It's it's no fun, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I I met with this person recently who uh, worked with uh, Celine Dion mm-hmm. uh, for years and years and years. And I said, that must be amazing being in a situation where you're working with Celine Dion. It must be amazing being an artist like that where you actually have that kind of fame. And he said, actually, Barry, it's it's a curse. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, she, she can't leave the hotel. Right. She tries to wear a hat, do whatever. She can't leave. If she leaves, even with bodyguards, it's like the swarming. It's, it's dangerous. Then every show she does is completely sold out and you would think well this is exciting every show is completely sold out and when i said that he said well actually it's not that she's not excited about it but she always has to sing my heart will go on from titanic at the end of every single right show they come to see her sing that and she doesn't want to sing it anymore she's done it but every show, she's she's basically cursed in the sense that she's tied to that, and that's what her audience wants. And then she can't leave. So I imagine with Chris, well, and also just, you know, Chris, when we were acting together, and you know, his wife became a casting director. She cast the Sopranos. George Aaron yeah, Walker. Yeah, and um, we used to be on the subway. He, I did Richard Pryor. And he loved. You did an impression of Richard Pryor. He loved. I did it to Dave one time. Dave stared back at. Me. Do you still do it? <laughs> I'm not going to do it now. Why not? Because it's not as accepted in the. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We can edit it out. <laughs> but in those days, once for Dave, and Dave didn't know quite how. Dave to, Chappelle. Yeah, how to how to respond to me, you know. It's just <laughs> but anyway, so we used to do that on. On the side, and he would just go crazy. Of course, he was smoking weed most of the time. But. You really can't give us a little piece of it. You know, I first met God in 1929 <laughs> outside a little hotel in Baltimore. I was walking down the street eating a tuna fish sandwich when somebody spoke unto me most holy and resounded. Said, Give me some of that sandwich. I said, Well, 
You got to get your own goddamn tuna fish sandwich. Well, ever since then, I had the power to heal because I didn't get up off the tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> Fantastic. It's so fascinating to actually uh, see a 70-year-old white man do Richard Pryor. It's incredible. That's fantastic. Okay, so you're on Broadway. You do the show. And so... You know, I'm, I think I'm going to have to see all this before you do anything with it. <laughs> no, but go ahead. All right. So how do you get hair, the original hair? I mean, and you uh, do you have to... Uh, I don't mean to talk about the nudity thing, but this was like the first... No, you didn't have to get naked to get the part. You didn't? No. I mean, I got naked on stage, but you didn't have to get naked to get the part. What happens if you weren't physically, aesthetically this nice? This is the 60s. We're hardly wearing any clothes anyway. All right. I mean, you know, we're... And I weighed 130 pounds then, you know. After uh, the unknown soldier's wife, I went up to Woodstock, New York. And I uh, worked at, at uh, the Woodstock Playhouse. And uh, I did their first uh, winter season that I stayed for the summer season. And the stage manager for hair, Fred Rhineglass, I don't even know if he's still alive, saw me up there. And he said, when you get back to the city, I want you to, to come uh, and audition for hair. And I said, well, I'm going on a USO tour, which I did. I went myself and five girls toured the Caribbean uh, for uh, for mostly Navy and Marine personnel. That's a whole other story. But anyway. <laughs> That was the time where you got the least amount of attention. Right <laughs> so, uh, so, so when I got back, I called him up and they had me come in. And, and, and Jerry Windsor, who later became my boss, was the casting director on that show. Relationships, everybody. Yeah, and we worked together at... MTM, um, and uh, so I got I got cast in that sh uh, that show um, just by singing for them, and I was understudy for Berger, which is one of the main leads, and I was also part of the tribe. The the my first I think was like in the first week, the guy who was playing Berger um, got sick, so I had to go in, and. My first night as Burger was uh, Diane Keaton's last night as Sheila. Wow. <laughs> I was the first Broadway replacement, if I should make that clear. It was like the, the show opened in, in 68. Were there other cast members of the original Hair that became household name actors? Well, we, you know, um, Melba Moore was yeah. in Hair. Um, when I was in Hair, the, the drummer for Eleven Spoonful. Okay. Became Claude, so we played. I played opposite him, Barry McGuire. Right. Thank you. But by the way, you know he was part. He's in the song of the Mamas and the Papas. So Barry's, uh, you know, they were all hanging out together. Okay, so we're through with hair. <laughs> <laughs> we're through with hair. So take me how you became casting an actor, oh. and then you went to become a okay. casting. Okay. Because well, you're successful, you're experiencing success. You're, you know, Broadway is the highest level that an actor can be on without being in movies. And also, to be honest with you, even when you're in movies, you feel like you haven't completed your career unless you go to Broadway. So you're well, at the in those days, level. In those days, uh, that's where the acting pool was coming from in terms of L.A. was so, from New York because so uh, everybody started in New York. So this is what's interesting, a pattern that's developing with you. I hope you don't mind me saying this. You do singing. You get from your... You know, whatever it is, you're the bar where your, you know, mom is a cocktail waitress, and you get to a theater where it's sold out, and women are attacking you afterwards, 
and then you're at the highest point there of that singing career, you quit, you go into the army, and then you get to the highest level as a actor where you're on Broadway, you, you book your first two things in a row, and then you say, you know what, this acting thing, fuck well, it. Well, let's, conti- <laughs> let's continue with that. Because after Hair, I loved Woodstock so much. We moved back up, this is my first wife and I, moved back up to Woodstock, New York. And I ran a hard, I, at first I had an antique store. Then I ran a hardware store, which is the main hardware store in Woodstock, you know, Woodstock, the festival, right? Uh, for like three or four years. Built a house, built a cabin on two acres of land, which is in a book called Woodstock Handmade Homes. And then I decided this is not enough action for me. I need to go back to the city. So go back to New York. I'm in a couple of plays off Broadway. Uh, I get hired myself and two black guys to back up Alexis Smith, the actress who was doing a nightclub uh, routine. And we travel with her. We Atlantic City, we do Toronto. And so during that time, I also sort of became the company manager while I was also singing in the background. So then I, when I got back, I falsified a resume to three different people. You lied. I lied. That's falsify. I lied. <laughs> One was um, Woodstock Playhouse, which I'd worked for, it, but as a production manager, Cohoes Music Hall, where I became the production of uh, the, the company... Um, company manager, and then Path Playhouse, which I got the job as production manager. Those were all the same year. And um, it was Path uh, that actually gave me my my training and my and my, cre- and my credibility for casting. Now, Path was in Path, Long Island. P-A-F. P-A-F. Huntington right? Station, uh, Long Island. Got it. P-A-F stood for? Performing Arts Foundation. Got it. Yeah. And so... While there, as I said, I was casting all the things. And Jeff Daniels worked in one of our things, and uh, and uh, he was associated with Circle Rep, which was Marshall Mason, who was the artistic director there. So I come out to visit a friend in L.A., and Marshall Mason is trying to talk me into becoming the general manager of Circle Rep in New York. And so I take a meeting with him and Lansford Wilson, the playwright, because they were doing Fifth of July at the taper. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to be a casting director, and I want you to get me a job. I want you to get me an interview here at the Mark Taper Forum. So uh, he was disappointed, but he talked to Bill Wingate, who was the general manager at the time. They called me. When I got back to New York, Bill Wingate was in town. He said, I hear you want to work at the Taper. Can we have lunch? We had lunch. He says, you're a great guy, but we have absolutely no positions. I'm living in Brooklyn. Two weeks later, Gordon Hunt, the father of Helen Hunt, who was running the casting office. Who was one of the greatest acting coaches. Cast her on St. Elsewhere. She was like 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, called me up and said, I understand you want to work in the casting office. He says, I'm in New York. So I talked to him. Two weeks later, I was in my MG headed for New York. That was February of 1980. That's why I always tell people that be open to everything because you never know when your career is going to come together. My career didn't come together till I was 35. I never knew I was going to be doing this. Then all of a sudden, I came to L.A. to make $60,000 a year. That was, that was my ambition. I was doing that within a year. And after that, I never had to make another decision again. They were all being make it, made for me. I just kept propelling. You know, it's like fate. You know, you just sort of have to believe and be open. What's incredible to me is that 
why didn't you think that fate was telling you that you were destined to be an actor because you booked your first two <laughs> acting jobs on Broadway? I don't think I don't think I ever had faith in me as an acting talent. Really? No. I think I mean music was different, and to this day I'm still a singer. But uh, you do understand though that anybody out there listening in any profession, if they were to get two gigs in a row at the highest level, that's like a waiter booking a, a job at the Peninsula Hotel and then backing it up with the four seasons right after it, as opposed to the shitty places they normally were, to the thousandth power. And well, so, and so uh, you... you yeah, yeah, there's something to that. What you're, you're jogging my memory. And what it was was I worked nonstop for two years after the Army in New York. Then all of a sudden, it was quiet. I said, well, I'm not going to sit around here and wait for the phone to ring. That's just not who I am. And that's why I went back up to Woodstock and actually was in charge of my life, Got it. which I've always needed to be. Okay, so tell me your first gig from Long Island to getting a job here in Hollywood in television. Well, I got hired at the Mark Tabor Forum, and so we did. I was there for oh, about a year and a half, two years, where I met my wife. She was working there. And uh, and uh, we did. So you dipped your pen in company ink. <laughs> Both of our kids were born while I was there. That's not true, actually. Julia was born when I was doing Newhart because the guy sent flowers to my wife. Anyway, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I was there for two years, and while there, we were the okay. So Frank Bear and I were the casting office at the Mark Taper Forum at that time. Explain to our audience, because the Mark Taper Forum, for anybody in the acting profession, is like, it's like the the golden, it's like the holy grail. But for those of you out there in the world listening to this, I think it's important for you to explain what the Mark Taper Forum is and what it means to the acting community and, and, and why it means as much. Well, I think for one reason why it became so important, because of the... the acting pool that was available in L.A. And people, especially at that point, most actors in L.A. were coming from New York. So they were transplants. They wanted, you know, it was fine to do things in front of the camera, but they needed the theater. And I think Gordon uh, Davidson was a true visionary in terms of the kind of plays uh, that he sought for the taper. And in the beginning, I mean, it was, it was all original work. So he had two things going for him. Everybody wanted to act there, and and the uh, work that was being there was some of the best theater that was being written uh, in America. Uh, and even when we did the rep company, I mean, you wouldn't believe the people we had auditioned for a rep company at the Mark Taper because they were in L.A. and they had theater in their blood. You know? Why don't you share it with our audience? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's the first some... time I saw Kelsey Grammer. He auditioned for the rep company. Jeff Goldblum, thank you. We used to have, I, I started something there that I tried to do at Disney, but it it just became a headache in that the first uh, Monday out of every month, any actor could come in and audition. They had a one minute audition. Um, you just had to make a point. We took 50 a month and uh, Joe Mantegna came in on those auditions. Jeff Goldblum came in on all those auditions and Jeff Goldblum and I think this really, really describes Jeff Goldblum as an actor. He came in with props, which I always tell actors never <laughs> come in with props. He set a little table that was there. He had a little vase and a rose. He put the vase and the rose on the table, and then he 
Kamesha doing his scene. <laughs> and he didn't get hired. And he didn't get hired. But he was just too exotic. It was just running. Kelsey Grammer did not get hired. He didn't get hired. But I wasn't in the room on that audition. We just set up the. I, I wasn't in the room for those auditions. Doesn't matter. So I didn't see his performance. So a lot of people didn't get their first gig. Well, the ta here's the other thing. You see, the thing about the taper, we paid a certain amount of money. You either did it or you didn't do it. It wasn't about money to work at the taper. It was about the material and the chance to do really good theater with, like, uh, 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 New York directors. So, and just because you were known didn't mean you were going to be cast at the taper. You had to be right for the role. And so there was a lot of that kind of... I remember I had a conversation with an agent one time. Why would I want him to advertise that he's unemployed? <laughs> and that was a you know, so it was a constant struggle between agent and talent because talent wanted to be where we were so we had had to always have those little battles anyway so we did the taper I was there for two years and then while I was there Tony Howard Tony Howard the agent the agent now was now a at ICM she was a casting director then and she worked for Lynn Stallmaster and um, she um she heard about me through Andy Friedman, who was an agent, and we had an interview. And while I was there, we did Tootsie, we did Right Stuff, we did uh, uh, Foreign Birds, we did um, they did a, a lot of great work. Well, I, but I just I didn't. Lisa Freiberger was there then. Yeah. The thing about that department is there were four people working on one project all the time. I didn't like that. So after about half a year. I, I left there and I went to, to Universal. I think what's what's incredible about your career, which is an example for anybody's career, is you associate, it's almost like that book that you read when you're a young person, uh, how to, uh, what is it? Uh, oh, how to succeed in business without really trying? <laughs> no, that was a plan. No, the, uh, ah! I'm going blank, I'm sorry. You're younger the, than me, right? I am younger than you, sadly. Um, how to win friends and influence, influence people. people. Okay. Um, and and so what it always says. Did you read that book? Is it a problem? Well, I was wondering, did you use that book? I did not read it when <laughs> I because there was it. no evidence that you were using that book. And I, knew. <laughs> <laughs> I did not read it when I needed to read it. I read it later. So there was no evidence. How did I ever get to this point uh, where I'm doing a podcast for six dollars and a bucket of chicken? Who knew? Uh, but um, but the thing is, is that in the book it tells you to associate yourself with people at levels that are higher than yourself. Mm -hmm. And people will always look at you in a certain way. So here you are, you, you know, hair, you're on Broadway with Christopher Walken, you're working at the Mark Taper Forum, which is the greatest level of the world. And so people associated you with greatness. As opposed to working with in places that were like, you know, Joe's uh, theater company. And that's what and that's what people saw. And they said, hey, we, we need to be in business with this more guy. More people would have told me they associated me with greatness. I never heard that before. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, now you're hearing it today. All right. So you go to Universal yes. TV. And uh, what do you work on there? I work on Voyagers. Uh, John Eric Hexham, his first and last television show. Remember, because he had this gun accident. John Eric? Yeah, he killed himself yeah. with a gun. It was a prop gun. And that's right. From that point forward, prop guns don't have, they don't have a hole in the end of them. And that was a great... Was it air or what was it that killed them? Was it was, it, was, it, was something in there? I, I don't know. I always thought it was a bullet. I don't a really bullet, remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but that was a great job at the time because uh, Nick Thiel was one of the writers. It was a great group of writers, and it was a, Voyagers was a time travel show, and so I could use all these theater actors that nobody knew. Uh, and uh, the guys loved me because they didn't know any of these people. And I loved working with them because they were open to anybody. So that was a great gig. I didn't want to leave, but um, I got an offer for more money and a window to go to Mary, uh, Mary Tyler Moore Productions. When I say window, at Universal Television, you were in the basement. <laughs> now, Mary Tyler Moore was one of the first actors or actresses since Lucy and Desi right. to have an overall television deal. Back then, it wasn't normal to do that with actors and actresses, but they gave it to her. Well, the Dick Van Dyke show, you know, sort of made her, you know, very powerful. But she started a production company, you know, and that led to a lot in the, you know, in the... In the and what, this is what I want to ask you about the Dick Van Dyke. This is what's always fascinating. On the Dick Van Dyke show... Right. She was a straight person to Dick Van Dyke. Until they found out she could be really funny. That's right. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, the original Dick Van Dyke on that show wasn't Dick Van Dyke. I did not know that. It was um, uh, Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner played Alan Brady in the show. <laughs> so Carl Reiner, Reiner did, was the original. And matter of so, fact, I have the pilot if you ever want to look at it. So Carl Reiner, <laughs> he, I believe he wrote the pilot or yes, created yes, it. Yes, he was the became he was the creative. Uh, so here's the this is like the first incarnation of what you see today of like Louis C.K. <laughs> Carl Reiner was a writer. He did the 2,000-year-old uh, man with uh, Mel Brooks, obviously, but he was a writer back then. He created a sitcom for himself to star in. He cast Mary Tyler Moore opposite him. He does the pilot, and the network executives look at the pilot and say, uh, you know what, Carl, um, you should probably not be the lead. But I don't think, I, as I remember it, and I haven't looked at it recently, I don't think Mary Tyler Moore was... She wasn't cast. She wasn't cast, and it was a different cast. And so they, I, what obviously happened is they liked the idea, and they just completely overhauled the whole thing. But I have it sometimes, you want us. I would love to see that. Wow. Uh, so anyway, we were talking about, so she started her own production company and with Grant Tinker, who was her, I don't know if they were ever married. Maybe they became married later, but they were always together. They created MTM Productions, which was, you know, Hill Street Blues, uh, WKRP, St. Elsewhere, New Heart. Uh, uh, the New Heart I worked on was the one in, uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, was that Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl? I'm the one who brought Daryl and Daryl and Daryl in, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl in because they were all theater actors from the Mark Taper Four. So I created Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. One of the most original cast things you could ever see in your Tony life. Tony Pappenfuss, John Volstadt, William Sanderson. Uh, Tony Papenfus and John Volstadt. William Sanderson is this crazy-looking actor that always plays a hayseed, always big roles. Um, he was uh, he was on uh, Deadwood. He always plays a strange guy. He was one of the bartenders in Deadwood. He was like the real wormy guy. Uh -huh. uh, he is a lawyer. He is trained as a lawyer, and nobody would ever. His hair was always like. That you know, nobody would ever guess that he would, but he he is a very intelligent, smart guy, but never ever plays those roles. Incredible. So you're working on casting all of those shows. Yeah, Newhart and no Newhart and and uh, Saint Elsewhere were the ones I was direct directly casting. 
So tell us about a young comedian who you cast in St. Elsewhere in his first role. Oh, you mean Howie? Yeah, that's right, Howie. Oh, yeah. Well, here's actually interesting. I was not responsible for casting Howie because that was the pilot. That was the first the first year. And what happened was that show, the network shut it down for six months to revamp it. And that's when Howie was added. Um, but the thing about Howie, I can t- he, w- he really couldn't act in the beginning. I mean, he was a personality. He was charming, cute, and all that kind of stuff. And I told him this to his face, actually, when he came in to pitch an idea before I, I left the company. But it was about two years in, and there was a sh- an episode called The Women with uh, Bruce Paltrow, who was the executive producer of the show's wife, Blythe Danner. And, and Edith, daughter. And daughter. Uh, I, well, Gwyneth used to, was like 12 or 13 when she used to like be on a sofa like this. This is the only way I ever saw her. Live <laughs> thrown. <laughs> yeah, her and her brother, Jake. But uh, so, and, and he had a very serious scene with Marion Mercer, who was a wonderful actress who's since passed away. And he was really wonderful in it. It was when he learned to act. All those two years and being on the stage, he finally learned to act. And that's where I honestly think he changed as an actor. By the way, the one thing I wanted to say about Dane Cook, the biggest surprise of that whole deal was that Dane Cook could really act. I know. And I when mean, he hit the stage, I mean, we were all on pins and needles wondering what was going to happen. And he had such presence. He, you know, he, he knew the lines. He was really alive and he was great. And this is something that I'll never forget. And this never happened to me ever before. You took me aside after a meeting. You said, Barry, we're a little bit concerned about Dane, whether he can act or not. We'd like to send him up with an acting coach. I said, no problem. I'll tell him. Who's the acting coach? Gordon Hunt. Well, that's why I, I sent him to Gordon, everybody. So he sends Dane to Gordon Hunt. And this is, you know, and Dane said to me before he went, look, you know, I just want you to know, Barry, I'm going to be as prepared and I'm going to be ready for this. And I'm, I'm going to I'm going to show these people that I can do this. He goes to a session with Gordon Hunt. He comes out and he comes directly to my office. And I said, how did it go? And he said he did a scene with Gordon, and he finishes the scene, and Gordon takes the script out of my hand and throws it in the trash and said, get out of here. Get out of my office. Get out of my area here. You don't need to be here anymore. He's like, and he says to me, but, you know, Gordon, I, I, I have to be here. They told me I have to. Get out. <laughs> you are not coming back here. You do not have Gordon to do this. Gordon called me and he told me, he says, he's great. What the hell? I don't have time for this. I'm trying to make a living. <laughs> but none of us had seen him act to that point. Yeah. It wasn't, we did the same thing with Tim Allen. You know, none of us had had seen, you know, that, and you don't know, you know, it doesn't always translate. Comedians don't always translate to acting because they're totally two different muscles. And so it's not everybody that hits the stage, you know, and can do it. Some of them learn it and they get better and better and better. And, you know. uh, All right. So you're at MTM. You work with all these different people. And then how do you get to Disney? So what happened when I was at uh, MTM, uh, about six months before I actually was hired there, maybe even a year, I got a phone call from um, Gretchen Rennell, who was the head of the, de- the casting department there because they did mostly features, and she wanted to hire me uh, for the department. 
and I said, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, that's too much of a lateral move. The next time, especially the job that I really like, which I really loved at MTM, that I need I need this to be upward upward growth. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense for me. So they really couldn't. They liked me. They wanted to hire me, but they really couldn't offer that to me. So then, uh, I don't know, six months to a year later. I got a phone call from somebody else whom I don't remember now. I think maybe it was Randy Reese because he was the first head of television there. Um, and so we have a vice president's position opening. We'd like to interview for it. Uh, have you interviewed for it? Well, at the same time, do you remember Phyllis Huffman? Yes, I do. Phyllis Huffman calls me up when I'm at MTM. She said, I had a dream last night. I'm leaving the company and you're going to replace me. That's and quite, I it's quite some interesting shoes to fill there. That's huge. Yeah. And I said, absolutely. You know, and so she, so as we got into it, she said, Harvey Shepard, who's Greer Shepard's father, who was running Warner Brothers at the time, Warner Brothers Television, just wants to meet. Okay, fine. Don't you find it interesting that you're a casting director and your job was to audition people, to find somebody to win and get the role, and to get the job as a casting director, you have to audition. Oh yeah, being interviews or whatever. Oh, there's a, I don't know how much of the story I can tell, but- You can tell everything. Well, I was, uh, when they had the writer's strike in 87, whenever that was, I went and I had left MTM, I had my own business for a year. So I was hired by Disney to direct, to Actually, As a uh, Mary Buck, Mary Buck, Mary and, her Buck pop, and, and Susan Edelman were were casting Rescuers too. They couldn't finish the job, so they recommended me for it. Tom Schumacher and I had worked at the Taper together. We've known each other forever, and he said absolutely. So I, Tom Schumacher, I think they were paying me twenty five hundred dollars to do this, and to, no, maybe it was twenty five thousand because it went on for a long time. Probably was more like twenty five thousand. Anyway. Tom Schumacher, when he's at my place in Colorado, says, you know, I, lo I love it because when you were you were there uh, uh, and you got the job, and while I was doing rescuers, they decided they wanted to hire me to run the department. <laughs> okay. So they wanted their money back for rescuers. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this, this. Uh, uh, negotiation went on well into the time that I'm running running the casting office for uh, television for Disney. Why did they want their money back? Just because I'd only worked on the show for two weeks or whatever. Uh, but Schumacher, after he negotiated my deal, oh, that, actually I got a little bit of side of the story because Schumacher told me after they negotiated my deal and uh, and he said we had, I think maybe it was twenty five hundred because he said we had five thousand uh, dollars. To, to uh, hire casting directors, you did it for twenty five hundred, and and Jeffrey and um, the other woman that ran business affairs at the time said we paid him too much. <laughs> <laughs> and always gave him a, a hard. He said, but we save we save five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we paid him too much anyway, and so then I went on to run their department. But I digress. That's okay. I remember going into your office at uh, at Disney. And go into your office, and your office was different from everybody's office. You had like hardwood floors. You had a coffee table. 
that was not found in nature. It was glass with a scene of like the it was, country and it was like rain, a rainbow trout, buffalo and trout or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> there were like paintings of cowboys that were commissioned for the office across the, every single thing. And I remember walking in the first time I got my deal in 1995 at Disney. And I said, how do you get an office like this, Gene? And he said, Barry, you get an office like this by doing a job that people don't expect you to do. You get an office like this when you do the work that's at the highest levels that you expect to do. You gave me the whole speech on it, but not in a way where you were looked like a conceited jerk. You did in a way just to say, this is how you do I, I said, I still don't understand. He said, Barry, when you are able to find certain talent that get on television that make your company or your business millions of dollars. And you don't get residuals. And you don't get residuals. <laughs> on your next contract negotiation, you put things into your contract to make sure that when you go to work, you feel at home and you want to be at work. I said, I still don't understand. He said, in my last contract, I wrote in a $25,000 allowance for renovation of my office any way I wanted to do it. And they gave it to me. I said, wow, this is incredible. Your office is nicer than <laughs> Dean Valentine's office. Well, do you remember when we out on the terrace? Yes. And we, uh, Dean and I, I got Dean into smoking cigars. I mean, Cuban cigars. So we put lounge chairs out on the terrace and we had a phone hooked up on the wall. We had all of our meetings out there so we could smoke cigars. That's right, it was incredible. <laughs> so you're you're at Disney ABC and you you you're, you start this department. Let me take you back a little. Please. Okay. It started Disney hired me for their TV department. Yeah. Okay, and so that went on for I got 10 years or so and then Michael Eisner decided he wanted to own a network. And so he tried to buy NBC, that didn't work out. And so they bought ABC. And so when they bought ABC, there was a whole big thing going on about, you know, who's going to be casting for, uh, they wanted one casting director to oversee both. And so, you know, Donna was, Rosenstein was at ABC at the time, and I was at Disney, and we bought the network. So Disney, uh, Stu Bloomberg brought me along. And, and, and Lloyd. Stu Bloomberg was the president of entertainment at ABC. Right. And Lloyd Braun. And Lloyd Braun. Yeah. Uh, brought me to ABC with him. That, so that's how, by the way, we were very, I was very upset when we bought ABC because all of our stock options went down. And they were splitting for like a 15-year period, you know. Then all of a sudden, uh, uh, bonuses went down, stock options, because they had to grow them again, you know. Anyway. But... Uh, so that's how that happened. And we had for a year while they built a ABC building in Burbank, we were over here, Century City. Now, when did you know that in this new venture at ABC Disney, when did you know that you had really reached a level that very few casting directors had ever reached? Well, I think I, I think I was the first to uh, at, the, at the time to be doing the studio and the network. I mean that, you know, Peter Golden, they they started the studio, so then he also did CBS. At CBS. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and Mark at NBC. 
uh, Mark Hirschfield. Hirschfield, thank you very much. Uh, also, then they had a studio. But, but I think I was the first. And Mark has done this podcast, and he's wonderful. Oh, he's a great guy. Amazing. So I have a few questions before we get into the uh, the roundup here. And I want to ask, good, you want to get out of here. Um, tell me the key things that you look at when an actor comes to audition. So anybody out there who's an actor, who's thinking and wants to book roles, you're the casting director. There's 100 to 200 to 300 people to come in. What are you looking for when somebody walks in, does what they do and closes the door where you say, I have to hire that guy, I have to test that guy or girl? What is it that you're looking for? Well, first of all, presence. They have to own the space that they're standing in. That's the most electric, that's the thing you're looking for. You know, when somebody comes in and uh, they're defi they define immediately who they are. You know, whether, whether they're right or wrong for this role, because, you know, we're always, we're, we're always casting a whole bunch of roles, but you're looking for that person who um, has the talent, but also has presence, has some, uh, I mean, a lot of people call, call it, you know, charisma or whatever, but that's not a, I'm just talking about that they own the space that they're walking into. And and uh, and it's also important in terms of interviews and stuff like that because, as you said earlier, you never know who you're meeting. You don't even know what they've been through. You don't even know if they like actors. I mean, they're you know I've worked with producers who had to look at the ceiling because they were too embarrassed to watch actors read. So so every you can only be responsible for you, and so you must be. You it must be your room when you walk in. Tell me something that actors did when they came in that always really bothered you and you could just never understand why they went in and why they did what they did. What was it like a common thing that you saw in actors that consistently was something that always brought them down? The, the audition is a horrendous process. We all know that going into it. And a lot of times you don't find really great actors in the audition process because auditioning is a different muscle than acting. So w the thing that an actor should never do, especially in an audition or a meeting, but especially in an audition, is come in hoping for luck. They should come in, really have done their work on the material, own, own the work. They can hold it in their hand, the material, but they should have it pretty much committed to memory so they can bring character to it. And the thing that would would always kind of bug me, although I always had empathy for actors. I, 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 I can't even think of an actor that I really, I like, I didn't like, or, you know, are they they hit me wrong or whatever because uh, I had empathy for the process that we're going to I hated auditioning one of the reasons why I stopped acting but the 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 thing is is that that's the only thing the only thing you have control over is showing that you belong in the business not whether you get the job that's serendipity because your hair color could be wrong you're three inches too short for the leading lady uh, uh, the the uh, uh, director doesn't like blondes. It could be all kinds of different things, but we're going to be casting other stuff. So the important thing is to own your performance. You know, make it make it yours. Matt Williams told me that he was Matt doing, Williams, who was the creator of Home Improvement, Home Improvement and Roseanne, right? And he also comes from theater, and he was doing a 
He was doing a play, which I cannot remember the name of, on Broadway. By the way, Matt Williams also did one of our podcasts, really great one. Oh, did like he? A, like a master class in writing. He's you know, he's a wonderful human being, first of all. I haven't seen him in too many years, but he's a wonderful Amazing. human being. He got cast uh, in this play. But the year before, he auditioned for a project that Matt was... It was Ken Howard. Ken it? Howard. Thank you very much. All right. So it was Ken Howard. So, But he had auditioned for a TV project the year before. And he, after he got this job with Matt, he said, I knew when I was on, when I was reading this material that I was actually... The first time I auditioned for you, I was auditioning for this role. And that's so true because it happens all the time when somebody's just not right for this, but they're so gifted, you're not going to forget them. So you have to, the actor has, you have to, as much as possible, control what you can control, which is you, which is you being ready, which is you uh, having the talent, the training, and anything else that you have to do. So when the moment happens, you own it, has nothing to do with anybody in the room. By the way, if you're doing television, most of the time, you have to come in with two-thirds of the performance anyway, because if you've got a great director, he hits a set, he's worried about meal penalties. He's worried about all kinds of stuff besides your performance. So a lot of times in an audition, they're looking, can I work with this guy? Um, does he seem like he's got it together so I don't have to you know, uh, put too much? Because we're on a clock in television. Movies, you know, you can take 50, 100 takes. It's not the same thing. You said you don't mind when the actor holds the paper. Now, I'm certainly been in about one one thousandth of the rooms you've been in, but I have been in casting sessions, many of them. And my pet peeve is if I see a guy with a piece of paper in his hand, I just turn off. Because I want somebody to come in the room and show me how they're going to do it when they walk onto the soundstage. Now, here's the way I look at that. And that's because, I mean, my, my own personal career has sort of established this, and I'm Italian. And that is that, you know, presentation is everything. You, you know, even in, no matter what job you get, you have to make people think you can do it until you learn how to do it, if you don't know how to do it. <laughs> so when I, say, when I say hold the paper, what I mean is you should have it down in your head. But you hold that paper so the director thinks he's got something to fill in that he's got something to bring to the performance himself so that it's not like, oh, my God, he's going to show up on the set and do that. And I have no input into it. So I always think it's like, this is what I can do. Uh, or the impression is this is what I can do off the page. When I get rid of these things, I'm going to be even that much better. But the director normally isn't in the room with a television audition. Well, that's not true. Oh, wait, not the shows I worked on. The director the of director. the show is normally there all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe for especially the, during pilots and during maybe for the pilot, but not for the Well, no wait, no oh wait. Okay. So if you're talking about I'm talking about all sorts of casting, but you're right. right. The pilot, the director is there, but the other episode's not. Right. If okay, it, I got yeah, it. Okay. okay, that's interesting that you said that. And, I don't... and by the way, uh, most of the time nowadays, if you're even for the day players, you're being put on, on tape. Yeah. And the director or somebody close to him is seeing the tape. Yeah, these days what's happening a lot, for those of you who don't know, uh, and not only in this profession, but any profession, a lot of uh, tests are being put on tape. A lot of, like, they're not even, like Clint Eastwood, for the last 25 years, 
he doesn't go in the room with actors because he doesn't want actors to feel uncomfortable. So he just has them go on tape and then he looks at the tape and he decides. And that's coming true for a lot of the networks are now looking at tape and deciding on people versus having them come into the room. Not every place, but some places, which I think is, is interesting. I hate it. I hated it when I was, because that just started to happen as I was getting ready to retire, where people wanted, producers wanted to see more and more tape. Well, first of all, I don't trust a producer to look at a tape by himself or to judge a performance by himself. Most of the time, I mean, they're writers. And, and I'm, if it, I have faith in what I do so that I have to at least inform that decision. And so I, I always resisted tape. And, and when we used to do tape at, at ABC or Disney, I would tell producers who wanted to look at tape, I'd say, okay, but here's the rule. If somebody moves their elbow the way you like, I wanna fly them in. Because, uh, because you can't really tell about a performance on a tape. So you can dismiss them off tape, that's what they do. The easiest thing to do is dismiss performance off tape. Now what's interesting is you say you can't tell truly off a performance on tape, but when you're watching the television show, you're watching a tape that got edited and transferred on a television and you're series watching or a movie. An, you're watching an informed uh, so you're, you're, when when they actually do the job, you're watching the t you're watching something that resembles a tape, right. but you're saying that the tape. But you're do watching it. an informed performance. When when somebody does a tape in New York, they're doing it with a casting director, okay? Whether they have the the page in front of them or not, they're doing it, and you're right here, and it's two dimensional. It's not three dimensional. You don't find you don't in my estimation, you can find reasons not to cast off them, but you don't really find reasons to cast off tape. As a matter of fact, when they like somebody, even though I use that thing about the elbow, when they like somebody, they have them come in and read for them personally anyway. That's the way they screen. And I always, I want to see what's going on. I want to know who the person is. I want to know how they take direction. I want to know if the lights are on in their eyes or if they're just throwing it up and hoping it, it sticks. If there's, a, you know, the, I want to know the real performance. Besides what you've already told us. No. If you were writing a book, and the book was, these are the five tips I can give any actor or actress to go into a room and get the job, besides owning the room, like you said, what would your five tips be? Gene Blythe's five tips for going into a room and booking an acting job that maybe actors and actresses don't know or they don't understand. Okay, see, the thing you keep saying, and you've said it before, is about going in the room. It doesn't all just start at going in the room. It starts with how you live your day-to-day -day life. The only thing you have control over, the only thing that you can develop your own self-esteem uh, with is 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 to go uh, is to own your life, and if it's as I said, if it's being an actor to go to classes or whatever, um, if it's about making your because you don't have auditions, making a shopping list, going shopping, cleaning the house, having things to do, but but owning your time so that when you walk in that room, it's not the only thing you do because if you're waiting for that to happen, probably not much is going to happen because you haven't done all the work on yourself. And so what I, what I honestly think is the most important thing to do is to 
is to take control of your life as much as you can, taking control of your process, know who you are. If you, you go in, you, you prepare as best you can, you go in, you give the best performance you can, and then go to the movies, leave it behind you. Whatever happens, you've just, hopefully you've just dropped a seed. Maybe it'll lead to that job, maybe it won't, but you need to have something that gets you day in and day out so that you don't just become one dimensional about the profession, especially in this town. I mean, you can't, in New York, you could find the door to get slammed in your face. In this town, you can't even find the parking lot. So you, uh, you have to have something inside you, your motor, that makes you interesting, that keeps you going, that keeps you curious. You know, and all the actors that most actors, you know, like respect, like the Duvals and those kind of people, are people who had a vision for their career that decided, okay, half hour is probably not what I'm going to do. Not because I've got an attitude, it's probably not where I'm going to be. So they all took control of their careers, or Pacino, whoever, they took control of their careers. And that's what I advise young actors to do, is not to, is not to think that they just have to act pretty, be pretty, uh, be clever, but be real people and bring it in the room. That's all we want to see anyway, in terms of casting. Is you, we, whatever's on the page, we're hoping you fit. We want to see that person. Here's something. If this happened as a, when you were a casting director, would you have told the person, no, you can't do this. You're going to do it this way. If I were an actor and I wanted to get a role and I was working all night with a friend of mine rehearsing, I would want to bring that guy to the audition, walk in the room and say, you know what, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to read this with my friend who I've been working with, not you reading it off the page like that. Would you say, I'm sorry, that guy's going to have to leave, you're going to have to do it with me or not do it? What I would say is you don't want to do that because I may be looking at him and not you. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, because th that... And, you know, if he's really good, if you're both really good, I might be looking at him because he's a little bit better to look than you. Or brings a little bit more spark. Got it. Uh, tell me something that you hate about the casting process more than you've described that you would change, and how would you change it? Uh, the best part of being a casting director were the performers. That was the best part. That was me and them, knowing who they were, bringing that along, being part of their life as they're developing that way. The worst part of casting in this town is the whole other part of it, which is is the politics of it, the, uh, the studios, the networks, the everybody that has to be involved so they can say they're involved. Um, I, I'm proud to say that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I, I probably, uh, I wrinkled a few feathers because I would not be part of that. New people came in. I said, this is the way we're doing it because it's the only way that we can do it. And if you want me to do it again, I'll do it again. But I'm not going to bring in a bunch of choices that I don't believe in just so that you can say that you've seen choices. That's not the way to cast anything. You have to know that I'm working, that I believe in, in what you're seeing so that there's there's no guessing going on. And. And so that part of it, I, I never really liked. That part of it, you probably heard me say before, I'm in the business to get out of the business. And that was true. 
because most of the people that are involved in that process, and I would imagine it's even worse now, have no idea of what we do or what we bring to it uh, in, in terms of, and I, again, I want to s- specify, I'm talking about television, about knowing who those people are that, that, that have the quality that you want in your living room. The, the access, accessibility, that kind of thing. It's not always about just performance. And I, I, I think a lot of writers or production executives, that sort of thing, don't have that experience. They don't bring that. And, and, I, and I think that, and I self-servingly think that some people who have done acting, whether they were terrific at it or not, understand the process a little bit better. Tell me an actor or actress that you saw that you fought for hard who the director of the pilot the the network executives they just looked at the person they're like gene are you are you high this person is not the person who you just kept fighting and fighting and fighting until they finally got the gig and they were successful well, Marsha Cross was one of those people. That was somebody that, that I had to fight for for a long time. And we brought her in three or four times. And that was for Desperate Housewives. Yeah. Uh, uh, because they just, they didn't get it. They saw something else in the writing. But the one that I, I always think of is um, one of the things I've always regretted is that Deborah Messing came into town. I met her. I loved her. She came uh, in the office. And I really wanted her um, for this half hour we were doing at CBS. And nobody got her. They just, you know, I just thought she was great and real and she was there and she was funny. And um, uh, about six months later, she got Will and Grace. And w- we should have had her on that show. And, and, and now, and, and you know what breaks my heart is I run into her and she says, oh, yeah, you were there at the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's more than that. It's more than that. It was, I mean, I was really passionate about that. Now, you said to me before we got on the air that casting, you realized well into it, you thought originally that it would be about the relationships with the performers that you actually came out of that pool. But what you realized later was that it wasn't about those relationships. Talk about that. Okay, yeah, but I don't want to just sound, you know... uh, it's it's more about the reality of the situation than sour grapes. It's just like you you are part of somebody uh, when you meet them initially. You know, everything's new for them. You're just meeting them. You're excited. You get their careers going. Uh, you might again f- uh, try to fight with a certain writer or producer to to get the gig and that kind of thing. And you're part of their development. You're good buddies because you're all working towards the same goal. And then when they shoot off. Their lives are totally preoccupied with something else. And that's when I, after retiring, I realized there wasn't, we had a working relationship. It was a good, valuable relationship. And it was nothing, not positive about it. But it's not like I'm going to be Dave's best friend for the rest of his life. Or, and there's, you know, we just move on to other things. And I, and I think a lot of, I hear it now from people who have retired that, that will say, will say to me, I realize now, I didn't have any relationships, but that's not true. When you had a lot of relationships, it's just that that's just part of the the, the whole development cycle, really. All right, we're going to do a little word association here with a lot of different things and people. It's going to be fun. We're not talking about the uh, shape, Harry. 
<laughs> <laughs> wow, that brings back that. <laughs> we walk into the Chez Paris. Chez Paris is in the Montreal Just for Last Festival. It's a strip club with Canadian women who basically move in a way that uh, <laughs> human beings are, are, are never move. Uh, so we walk in with Dave Chappelle, Dane Cook. Um, uh, probably Kelly Lee. <laughs> Kelly Lee, who you hired as a, uh, right, a casting person, now she's the head of casting. <laughs> um, whom he introduced me to. Kelly Lee was his idea, for better or worse. I, I actually, it's the weirdest thing, because you think about certain situations where you're behind the scenes and you recommend something somebody for something and you know that you're you know you're not a hundred percent of the reason why they got hired and you're not one percent but you're somewhere there where you you and, and I At least rank, uh, name recognition right <laughs> yeah and I I loved Kelly Lee there was something about her energy and she was just so amazing she had such a presence and you talk about charisma and power and she was this petite uh, you know, little Asian woman who just had so much presence. She like lit up a room and like an actor or actress would. And I thought she was doing great things with what she was doing. And I thought she was ready for the next jump. And I thought that she'd be a great fit and a transition with you. But I, who knows? You met like, you probably met like 50 people. You met two. And you told me about both of them. I didn't. I forget who the other person Actually, was. I did meet other people, but there were only two that were in a consideration. It was this other person in Kelly. <clears throat> wow. I, I actually... It's uh, true. True. I'm very humbled then. There you go. You should um, be. I, uh, I'm going to uh, send myself a fruit basket. <laughs> but anyway, Chez Paris... <laughs> hey, I sent you more than fruit basket, Yes, pal. you did. Okay. You sent me a lot of stuff. <laughs> What's your zip code? <laughs> <laughs> Keep going with Chez <laughs> So this place, just, uh, just so you know, for men and women, it, it is the greatest strip club in the history of the world. I mean, you Because it's not seedy. You, it's it, not it's seedy. Not, and they're all, they're all young, and everybody goes there. It's like women and men. Women and men. Yeah. Literally, there's probably 30% of the people that go there are women, straight women. Because these women are the most beautiful yeah. women in the world. And what's fascinating is they have these things that they dance on. It's almost like the kind of thing that the elephant puts their paw right. like on a round the table top or whatever. It's yeah. like a round table that must weigh like 40 pounds. And these yeah. girls are carrying these things around. You're like, my God, how does she carry something that's heavier than she is? And she puts it down right in front of you. And she dances like right in front of you before she... Anyway, go on with the story. <laughs> I remember I called, I, I was being really open and everything. I called my wife and said, guess where I am? And I told her, I'm at the You didn't, you didn't, you didn't call her up and say, honey, I'd like to go to Shapery. Will you let no, me? No, 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 I'm said, guess there. guess where I am? I'm here. Right, right. She goes, what are you telling me this for? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you'd find it kicky, you know, you'd laugh. Who wouldn't fall in love with oh, those yeah. girls? Anyway, I don't want to talk about uh, strip clubs. Because, uh, <laughs> back then, I didn't have enough money to make it rain. <laughs> I basically, uh, anyway, so here's the word association. I'm going to mention yes, a lot of different people, a lot of different things. And I want you to just tell me just the first thing that comes to mind. Nothing, you know, you don't have to go crazy, but just a, something that identifies 
solidifies your memory or a memory you have that's short, quick, but is exciting to our audience. Okay? Bob Newhart. A really regular guy who, who drove an RV to work, and that's where he spent all of his time off stage in. Wow. <laughs> Christopher Walken. Uh, well, when I know him, great smile, great sense of humor, and a, a, a very gifted actor. Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, really smart, a smart lady who knew how who knew how to use her position. Never had to never had to get her hands dirty, but was always in control of everything. Hill Street Blues. Well, it, it, Hill Street Blues was the f the first. And the one and one of a kind in terms of cop shows on television, and um, and and I I also think established a certain criteria for writing on television. Selma Hayek. Well, I'm really. When I met her, I was really impressed. Here's someone who was a major a major star in Mexico novellas, major star. She came to L.A. Didn't look for a job for a year got rid of as much of her accent as she could to learn English, and then got an agent and, uh, you know, came in. So I was impressed with, you know, she's obviously smart. Uh, we signed her her first deal for $40,000. We put her in a show with um, Sinbad. And, and to this, by the way, when I did my four-year deal at Disney, you arranged with Dean to have me take over Sinbad's office on the top floor of that building on the 10th floor. And right. I, w I remember opening up my desk, and I didn't know whose office I took over, and there were all these headshots of Sinbad. <laughs> <laughs> so keep going. Well, I, 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 you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I had friends, uh, you know, that would run into her and say, say hi for me next to her. And she, she never would act like she remembered who I was. And so she came in, this is a decade later, for a development meeting, uh, Ugly Betty. Oh, Ugly Betty. Because she was a producer and she's the one that, you know, that uh, got America to sign up for it and all that stuff. So anyway, uh, so then I said, Selma, Gene Lynch. And then I said, remember the first half? Oh, my God. I try not to ever think of that ever. And the reason is, while she was doing that, were, first of all, they were wondering whether she could be funny. She could act. She was, But they thought she was too fat. And so she had got notes about losing weight. And so she tried to. Who gives those notes? And it wasn't me on Selma Hayek. It was not me. And so, um, and so that, it like. That whole show is just a bad memory for her because of that experience. So then I realized, well, no wonder she's blocking that. She think I'm, thinks I'm part of all that. Drew Carey. Well, this this actually is a good. I would say Romano and Drew Carey are a good example of something, and that is when the writer actually hears someone's voice, really connects with a voice and can make that person an actor. Drew Carey was, I mean, we actually fired him off of a pilot that was During written the for LA him. riots. That's right. And you brought in Lenny, Lenny Clark. Clark. I went to Vegas to get and left my wife in the LA riots while I went to Vegas to put Lenny Clark on tape. And 
Drew, well, Drew in the beginning, I don't think it's true anymore. He had a hard time with like intimacy. And he's supposed to be married with kids. And so, like, if she got next to him, he would, like, move to the left or he wouldn't touch her. Let you know. And so it was never honest or real. Now, he, he uh, went on staff as a writer for a writer that did the George Lopez show. So they became friends. And he was a writing assistant on that show. Or he actually was a write, on the writing staff. Relationships. Uh, relationships. And, they, you know, they got to know more about each other. So when... That show came on. Drew really wasn't an actor. He really couldn't act. But yeah. that show was so written for him. He had his ear. And, you know, when I met Romano, when he came in, I mean, I, I, I loved him. He's a great guy. I thought, you know, he had, but he taught, he spoke so slowly that I just, I can't wait for him to finish a sentence. I don't have that much time. <laughs> you know, but when Rosenthal. Phil Rosenthal, heard, who did the podcast, right. was a great guest. When he, he heard it, he got it. And that is a, one of my favorite shows. It's a brilliant show. And Romano was wonderful on it. But that just gives you a sense of, you know, right time, right place and knowing who you are. Ellen DeGeneres. I wonder if I should say this. I uh, When we did the first Ellen show before she came out, I, I wrote in an envelope. And a, a year later, when she came out, I showed Dean the envelope. And in that envelope, I wrote, Ellen has a secret, and she won't be a success until she tells it. Wow. And uh, that, and, and, and conversely, I mean, I met Ellen when I was at MTM. She I was just a stand-up. She came in. She hardly said a word. She'd sit like you are in that chair and just... You know, I had to sort of work her along. But she remembered me when she came to Disney because she said, oh, I remember you because I was nice to her. But she, I think she had a large chip on her shoulder until she was able to release all of that stuff. And then this flower has come out. I just, I just think she's just incredible. She is incredible. Uh, Tim Allen. Uh... Tim Allen. He's a wise guy. <laughs> no, um, Tim was always, well, no, Tim, Tim's, uh, I think he's actually success has made him a, be a nicer person. I think in the beginning when it was all happening for him, you know, he could be a little bit of a diva, but he became, his career made him a nicer person. Well, this is what's fascinating. You, you, he was the first guy you rallied around to bring to the network. And he was a guy whose background was, if I'm not mistaken, was he had gone to prison. For cocaine. For cocaine. Yes. Yeah. So here you were, your first gig at Disney, and you're recommending they go into business with a guy who just got out of jail. You see, I don't think, uh, Baker Messina, no, but, or Messina Baker, however you want to uh, but Rick, it, Rick Messina, yeah. Richard Baker, who managed not only Tim Allen, but Drew Carey, uh, again, relationships. Right. right. Um, that I I had more a lot more conversations with them about Tim, and so I think Tim thinks of me as part of the group that made it happen, but doesn't really know about the you know the day to day conversations and calls and that kind of thing. That's that's why I think he was. And again, I'm talking too much because he's always been nice to me. He's never not been not you know nice to me or that kind of thing. But I think in terms of him actually, I think he thinks it. You know, uh, uh, Jeffrey might have even been more responsible for him than anybody. Jim Brewer. 
why well, I, I love Jim Brewer. Jim, uh, uh, what I mean, well, talk about raw. That was a really raw guy that walked in the room, and uh, and uh, but he always seemed, you know, our big thing. And what I had a because he always looked stone. <laughs> I don't think he always was stone, by the way, but he always looked stone. And we that was the major note he got when we were doing the pilot. You, know, you got to open your eyes, man. <laughs> you just look stoned all the time. Um, and I remember that. Uh, um, Buddies, well, buddies. For, do you know the story about buddies? So uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg comes I love, up. I love that you tell your story uh, about buddies. Well, Jeffrey Katzenberg says, "Let's send Gene across America to look for uh, for uh, uh, comedy talent, wherever he wants to go. We'd help him pick five, six cities and just go check them all out." So I'd already met Brewer, and, you know, Chappelle. Obviously, we had who, who I represented. Yeah, we time. probably were like had three deals with Chappelle by then. Yeah. I don't know, but uh, I came back and I said the two the two funniest guys that I've come in contact after all this travel, and I've been Louisville. I went to Florida. I went to all these Minnesota. I went to all these different places. Is Jim Brewer and Dave Chappelle, and that's why I was so you know honored to have that relationship with you because I was fortunate enough to represent those two people and you were somebody who I considered to be one of the greatest casting directors in the world and you'd searched the whole country <laughs> and the two people that you found that were the funniest were people that I worked with so and we missed that show up too because that show that show should have worked and I think it's because we didn't make it more meaningful I think in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, those guys could tell, you know, be funny for hours. This was Buddies, which was created by Matt Williams. Yeah, well. but I don't think we made it meaningful enough. In terms of their history, their their relationship as Buddies, their you know, their history, I think there should have been more of that in the show. So Katzenberg sent you to find the two funniest people for that purpose, to be a home improvement spinoff. Right. Yeah. Michael Eisner. I love Michael Eisner. Well, the th here's the thing about Michael Eisner. He's the guy that you get in the elevator with, always wants to know what you're doing, always wants to know what you like, always wants to know everything about everything. I don't believe he had any casting sense whatsoever. But he was always, always, always uh, very accessible. Um, in a way like Frank Wells, you know, who was his partner in terms of running the company, you get in the elevator with Frank Wells and he just stare forward. But Michael is a good guy. Nicky Cox. <laughs> uh, I knew her before everything. <laughs> well, you cast her as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I know. I know I did. And I remember, and actually David, on this. David. Newman. David Newman. I think. Former president of Disney. Right. Agency. I think it was after uh, uh, the show Married. Ever, what is that? Married with Children. Married with Children. Is that what it's called? Yes, and you did Unhappily Ever After. Uh, right? That's what I'm talking about. Unhappily Nikki. Ever After is what I'm talking about. After Unhappily Ever After, we tried to do another show with Nikki, and that's why we had this dinner at David Newman's to try to, you know, talk her into this deal and whatever. That show, Nikki, to right. me, was I, that was an interesting thing, because nobody gives enough credit, because that was Bruce Helper, too. 
the most original opening in any television show that I've ever seen since uh, Alan Ball Six Feet Under is like, and I, I know it's weird me putting it in the same class, <laughs> but Nikki and Bruce Helford orchestrated a dance number that was the opening of the cold open of every single show, a different dance number. It was right. incredible. Right, right. Uh, but I guess it was way ahead of its time. But um, uh, but tell me something about Nikki. No, she was all, and I remember when we brought in, because, um, um, well, the guy who uh, created uh, Married with Children, uh, uh, Ron, Ron Levin. Ron, it was the one that did that show. And uh, it was just. God, I'm trying to think of all the different people we saw at that time. We saw Denise Richards at that time. We saw, but, but she just was a natural comedian. She was a natural talent, you know. Um, and I mean, I remember she fell in love with her brother on the show. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, no, I, I always thought she was great. Her mother was very much in charge of her career, though. That's why we had to sort of talk her mother into everything. Got it, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Great. Guy, I mean, well, let me put it to you. Wait, I want to be more thoughtful about it. Uh, really t- tough to work for, in terms of d- being demanding. One of my favorite uh, quotes of his is that if you don't come in on Saturday, not, right, don't bother, don't bother coming, coming in on Sunday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the stories of how he used to come to work, and he used to feel the hoods of the cars of the executives that he worked with and the hood was warm that meant they hadn't been there as long and they weren't working as hard well i have a great jeffrey story to tell because as we were getting to know each other in that first year you know i mean he's really he's scary <laughs> uh you know and very demanding he wants to know what's going on all the time we have these weekly meetings so uh, um i forget if it was just him but there was a couple of it was pilot season and I think it was that year that we did seven out of nine got picked up right I couldn't make a meeting and Randy Reese was at this meeting and Jeffrey came in and he said you know Gene did a hell of a job this year this has just been incredible and Randy said you know I think he'd he'd like to hear that from you and Jeffrey said after he cast the last one I'll tell him well, I never got that <laughs> <laughs> however when he left the company uh, he almost moved me to tears. He called me in my car, and he said, "I just want you to know that I'm I'm leaving, but you're the best. If you ever want to work for me, you know." He just this most incredible phone call that he didn't have to do. I mean, you know, he's he's going up to create, you know, DreamWorks. He didn't, you know, but he he was that way. He was that way. Wow, Dave Chappelle. Well, I love Dave, and I'm sorry that I never really got a hit show with Dave. I'm sorry that I was the guy, and I really feel, I mean, besides you, you're the, you, you, the agent, I mean, the managers really do find these people. Uh, but, but I felt in terms of the industry that I got it, I saw it, I wanted it so bad that, you know, that we invested a lot of money into trying to make it work, and we never really got a, a hit show out of it. But I just think that the thing about Dave that was so incredible, and Richard Pryor is uh, Richard Pryor, Marlon Brando, and Bob Dylan. Those are my three heroes. But, but the thing about Dave is that in those days, it's a little heavier-handed now. But in those days, he could make jokes about the white man, but he was giving them the white man a little noogie. You know, yeah. why don't you do right? You know, as a poet, you know, it was never heavy-handed, so you could laugh at yourself, and and yet you were learning a lesson. You were learning something. And Dave was uh, at eighteen was a was already a master at that. That's true. Tell me your biggest disappointment in show business. Oh wow. Uh, 
I can't really think of one. I really can't. I can't think of my biggest disappointment in show business. I mean, I can think there are, there are actors like I didn't get, you know. Who are some of the actors that like, are household names that you like, never Like got. Jason Siegel. I didn't get that. We cast him in a pilot. I just didn't. I didn't get that at all. I, Judd is a great guy. I loved working with him. He's very inclusive. He was very inclusive to work with. But his taste at that time in actors, I, I just didn't get it. You know, we we had Jason and um, a little African American actor who's so popular now. Funny guy. Kevin Hart. Yes, Kevin Hart, and. And then there's Jason Siegel. I'm wondering, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) (laughs) I just did not get it. Now, later we put Hart in another uh, show of his own, and uh, it was quite funny. It didn't really catch on, but it was quite funny. But there are things like that where, you know, and I don't really fault myself for Romano because it's just something I couldn't see, and, and the writer's ear heard it. I, I can't hear the way, you know, but that was a big hit. And uh, and I love Patty Heat, and I always like to put her in everything, you know, but um, but those things just sort of, I can't really think of any big, you know, big things, you know? It's weird, I always like, I will go to see every Jason Siegel movie for one reason, is because I feel like he shows me what a real, person is not always huggable and lovable you know sad dark but funny and has an intention so i actually like watching him because it's not cartoony it's not like a characterization of something it's just a real slice of life when you I, I, walk on the street. But I mean, in, but in my definition of comedians, there's yeah. never any hard laughs with Jason. No, it's and, real. You know, that, it's real. And that's what. Well, that's except what, in certain instances yeah, but, when I, what, you know, I love the five year, whatever the movie oh, was, right, the where, is, whatever where, was. where he's in the, uh, the he, he he created a cabin with everything made out of animals. I'll never forget <laughs> that. But, but anyway, okay. So yeah. your proudest moment in show business. Well, St. Elsewhere was my proudest moment in show business. And uh, uh, the writing was just fantastic. I and mean, we were, were the first people to mention AIDS on television. Uh, Trivial Pursuit was mentioned the first time because Howie used to, it was, it was at that time available in Canada and he used to bring down Trivial Pursuit. But no, but anyway, the, and the stuff that we did, like, again, the, Scripts like The Women with Eva Legallien, who, you know, theater legends of people don't know that we could cast things like that. Like I, I got Alfre Woodard in that show, or uh, France Nguyen, who, you know, Bruce said, what, what made you think of her? We haven't seen her since. She dated Marlon Brando. We haven't seen her since the late 50s, early 60s, for, and she became a regular. There, we just did so much good stuff, and I received awards for it, but I, but I just liked that show so much. And I liked that group. They were all from theater. All of them were from theater, and so it was it was a great show to work on. Last question. What advice would you have for the person who's, you know, whatever, they're just starting their career, they're in a studio apartment somewhere, they 
they want to be the kind of executive that was at your level or the young actor who's just struggling uh, trying to make it trying to get to the next level and wants the kind of career that you know could be a person who could be booked on broadway in two shows or or make their mark um what advice do you have for the executive and the artist well it's going to be really simple in that and that's what i used to tell actors also there that and it's it's advice you've heard before but you don't think about and that is if you want to be an actor or an executive you will be but what that means is you're willing to put in all the time put all of the work wait for as long as you need to that there's nothing else you can do with your life except to do this one thing so all you ever are doing during the day is focusing on that one thing and if you really want it there's no way you won't get it all right, as I like to joke, because if you put yourself in the street every day, sooner or later you'll get hit by a truck. <laughs> so, but it is all about desire. It's, it's. I mean, talent is a major part, but we see not so talented people make it, and they deserve to make it because they really have the work ethic and the desire to make it. Awesome, Gene Blythe. Thank you so much. You are a legend to me. And he just said, shut the fuck up with his breath, which means in the language of this business, it means I love you, Barry. No, it's supposed to be with all due respect, which means fuck you very much, right? Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right. My pleasure. And this has been Industry Standard with Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell Keep all your friends. Yourself. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.